Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Michael Waits. Michael Waits. So this is Michael Waits, and this is our kickoff for ATP Crypto, actually. So, Edmund, thank you a ton, really, for doing this. I mean, I know we kind of met in the chat room, and then we just you said yes, and I said thank you. But Edmund Lowell, yeah? Is that the right way to pronounce your full name? That's the right way to pronounce it, okay. and honored to be here. Thank you. Oh, it's my oh. pleasure. So you're you're working on three things, you said, right? Yeah, really working full-time on self-key, but um, yeah, the, the three projects would be flagtheory.com, kycchain.com, and selfkey.org. So let's do this in reverse order, right? What is flag theory, just really quickly? Yeah, so flag theory is essentially a corporate secretarial firm, um, which, which kind of grew into something a little bit more complex, but that's how I started that okay. company. And how about, so KYC makes, I, I want to spend a little bit of time on this, right? KYC chain, because this is a know your customer business built on a distributed ledger of the blockchain, yeah? That's correct. So having done KYC processes many, many times, setting up companies for people right. as corporate secretary, sort of realized how silly and annoying that KYC process was and tried to build some technology to fix it. So where, where are you based exactly, just to put this into context? Yeah, sort of a plane um, flying between uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Thailand. I, I like to tell people my home is seat 1A. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a 3C, by the way, but fair enough. Just don't lean your chair too far back because you'll probably bump into me. Um, and where are you from originally? I'm originally from the U.S. I went to school in Boston, Northeastern University. But you're not from Boston, are you? I am. I mean, I grew up in Rhode Island and Boston and Rhode Island, you know, Rhode Island's barely large enough to call itself a state. It's the smallest state. So I usually just tell people Boston because no one knows that Rhode Island's not actually an island and it's just a confusing conversation. <laughs> really? So my, It's not an island. No. You'll, you'll, you'll laugh. I mean, I know it's not an island, but um, my family's from my, – so my parents grew up in Mattapan. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I grew up in Nantasket Beach. I don't know if you know where that is. I do, and oh. – uh, yeah, people used to joke it was called Murder Pen, not Mattapan. But uh, yeah, a little bit of a tough area. <laughs> well, so, you know, not to give away too much, but like when my parents were there, it was a Jewish ghetto, right? Um, and then it turned into something really bad, and now it's getting gentrified again. So it's a really. That's true. You know, my grandmother literally walked out of her house when she was in her late 50s and never went home because it was just too dangerous. But anyway, I yeah, get it. it's dangerous there, or or at least was at some point. As I think you correctly stated, is becoming gentrified and yeah, much more civil, much more nice. Anyway, um, so tell me a little bit more about KYC, and can you also tell me because I really want to talk about the crypto side of this, right? Like, how do you get involved in cryptology, in you know the blockchain? How do you find out about it? Because you didn't, you went to Northeastern, you said, yeah. Yeah, I studied law at Northeastern right. and uh, really always wanted to be a lawyer. One of the cool things about Northeastern is that you actually get to go and practice your profession while you're still in school. Yeah, so the internship program at Northeastern is awesome, right? Exactly, exactly. So I was so jazzed to go and, and uh, work in a court and actually see what lawyers do every day. I was sort of like a junior probation officer. And I remember the day I decided not to be a lawyer, I was sitting in court and there was this lady and... Uh, she was looking at a large amount of time and she had like two kids sitting in the back and uh, there was obviously a lot on the line for her and she was being represented by a public defender. So this is a, you know, a court appointed attorney, right. yep. not someone that's you're, you're paying any money for. And I remember that the uh, public defender got her off on a technicality and uh, she basically, this, this defendant got up, turned and left, grabbed her kids and go and didn't utter so much as a thank you. And, and I remember the moment when the judge, myself and the prosecutor kind of, caught eyes and just like shook our heads and rubbed our heads and i was like that's the moment that, that's it you know yeah, i'm not I, doing this because it doesn't seem it. real yeah 
not doing it. So, uh, yeah, after that point, I, uh, I, I had another co-op and I was a real estate agent um, selling property in Boston. I was a licensed real estate agent. And um, I enjoyed certain parts of it, but I always kind of was a little bit chagrined by uh, the fact that the broker who had the master broker's license got 50% of every uh, deal that I, that I did simply because he had the license. So I thought, all right, well, I need to start my own business. I know how to be a property agent. Why don't I just go and be a company agent? And that's when I started this, this company formation business still in, still in school. You did, but so, but you, did you start it for the Asian market? Well, at that point, I was kind of living in Boston, uh, freezing my butt off in the winter, and thought I can live anywhere. I've got a business. Right. Uh, I I drank in the Tim Ferriss Kool Aid and read the Four Hour Workweek, so I bought a one way ticket to Bangkok in 2011, and then uh, started getting much more, many more inquiries for doing overseas incorporations, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, offshore entities, and getting bank accounts in Hong Kong and Singapore. So that's. That's kind of how I started doing more incorporations in Asia. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a pretty good business out here, actually. And I, I like the idea that you left the freezing cold. People always ask <laughs> me, like, why wouldn't you just go back and live in Connecticut? Because I spent some time growing up in Connecticut as well. I'm like, I just don't want the cold. I, like, I was there in the blizzard of 78. You're probably too young to remember that. But, like, there was just so much snow. We would ice skate on our front yard, and there was no water there. It was just snow. It was just, I don't need any snow. If I never see snow again, it'll be too soon. I, you probably ski, but I don't ski, and I don't, I don't need it, so... I remember if I never saw snow again. I mean, one of the defining moments of my childhood was when there was a blizzard of 95. And I remember I was so short and the, and the snow was so high that I could simply duck down and my parents wouldn't see me and they'd start freaking out. You know, where's Edmund? We can't find him. Um, anyway, way too much snow up there. People don't understand out in, in Southeast Asia how much snow there is in the Northeast. Yeah. I mean, Buffalo. God, who knows? Um so tell me more about your introduction to the blockchain, because it sounds like self-key has a little bit of relationship there. Obviously, KYC chain does as well. So how did that develop? Yeah, so just having gone through this KYC process and knowing how silly it was, um, really, I felt like the problem was a trust issue. We were trying to establish some trust between our client and the bank that our client was who they said they were. Really, that was at the core of what we were trying to do. And uh, blockchain, at the time, I was thinking about these issues late 2013, early 2014, was sort of being explored for other uh, issues, I guess we could say, other, other problems blockchain was trying to solve. And so I wrote a white paper um, about how potentially we could use blockchain to kind of solve some of these issues. I had it reviewed by 50 people. Um, some of them got it. Some of them said, this looks great. Go start building. So I started building in 2015, um, sort of went full time on it in 2016. And uh, we're on our third generation of the platform. We have Standard Chartered as a, as a client who helped us build that third version. And um, what we learned in that process was that blockchain does a great job of, of creating trust, of, of distributing information across multiple nodes. In our context for identity and KYC, right. it really allows the user to kind of own their own identity, something that we call self-sovereign identity. So we're by no means the only company working on the space. There's several other notable companies internationally uh, that are working on it, um, although n not so many in Southeast Asia. And what we learned through that process of, of kind of working with these individual financial institutions as a B2B SaaS company was that the financial institutions oftentimes viewed the customer data as their proprietary data. Exactly. So your data, Michael, they think belongs to them. To them, right? Mike, this is, this is because I really want to talk about this, right? So this gets to the core of what a distributed ledger and blockchain technology disintermediates and decentralizes. Anyway, go, go ahead, because this is where it gets really interesting to me. Yeah. So, so we thought that, all right, we've got this great tech, it's working, um, we have some customers, but are we really going to change the world for this? Or are we just going to make some back end processes slightly right. more efficient for right. an already 
very wealthy financial institution. Mm -hmm. So what we decided was we'll take a certain portion of our code, this identity wallet, we'll open source it and we'll start a foundation so that not even us as a company technically owns or controls any of this data. And that will make us much more able to work with large uh, institutions of banks, governments, what have you, um, simply because we're, we're nonprofit and we have this open source code that anyone can come and build an application or a business on top of. So right now, if you go to selfkey.org and you click on try the demo, try alpha, you'll be able to see what it looks like, that, that identity wallet. And then you'll be able to take that identity wallet and look in the financial services marketplace that we've set up and you can search across different verticals. So if you click on passports, for instance, you'll be able to explore different countries in the world where you can legally become a citizen by making a donation or purchasing real estate. So, in this those is, countries. so Estonia, am I wrong here? But like, hasn't Estonia tried to make themselves like the, the first crypto country is, am I wrong there? Um, Sony has done several interesting things. So they've done e-residency. So that's that should not be mistaken with citizenship. citizenship. Okay. And it's technically not even residency. It's just the ability to set up a company in a bank account. So I think it's a little bit of a misnomer on Got their it. part, okay. but great marketing. And I was one of the first people to set up for it. So obviously they're doing <laughs> something right. They got my money. <laughs> I haven't used it either. But uh, yeah, so, so Estonia is absolutely one of the leaders in the space. And just as kind of a parallel point, it's interesting to look at how certain jurisdictions are reacting to blockchain and this disruptive technology, i.e. Estonia really embracing it. Uh, I think probably what you're referring to is Estonia tried to do their first um, ICO. Uh, something along those lines, I remember reading in my inbox, I might be mistaken there. And then you have other countries on the other side of it, you know, China has recently banned ICOs. So you sort of have certain jurisdictions embracing it and other jurisdictions kind of pushing it away and wanting a bit more control. Okay, so this whole concept of self-sovereign identity, can you just talk about that a little bit more, maybe for people that aren't as well-versed in what a distributed ledger technology does for them and why the concept of you owning your own data and owning your own self is significantly different than, you know, pick a bank, any bank or any sort of other depository of your information, owning that data. Like, how is that different and why does it matter? Sure. So why does it matter? I think we have a very um, precedent case in the news over the past couple months. I mean, you're American, Michael. I'm American. Uh, we both may have had our identities compromised in the Experian hack, which happened recently, where hundreds of millions of identities were leaked because this one company, Experian, which is a, is a credit bureau, kept all of our information stored in this centralized database. You're talking so, about Equifax, yeah? Equifax. Equifax, yeah. I pronounced it correctly. No, no, sorry. I just want to make sure that I heard you okay. Yep. Yep. Um, so, so the Equifax hack is, is, is relatively well known. And uh, my opinion is that they were hacked because they had some some weak security vulnerabilities in their systems, but more so because they presented such a large target yep. for hackers to potentially attack. Yep. Right. So if I'm going to go and try to hack Michael's phone, um, I'm not really going to get all that much data from hacking your phone. It might be awesome, and your pictures are clearly awesome, Michael. But you know, <laughs> you're welcome. Subject to say, uh, <laughs> you know, there's not 300 million people right. storing their data in your phone, but there is 300 million people's data in the Experian database. So it's it's a much larger target to attack, and it's a centralized target. Now, what blockchain does that a lot of other technologies, um, you know, can't do as effectively, a MySQL database can't do. Um, right. 
nerds are freaking out and, and sweating right now because there are databases which can be distributed. But um, suffice to say, blockchain does a great job of distributing data across multiple nodes. Right. And that allows you to have a distributed architecture where there's not a single point of failure in one place. So if we moved to a self-sovereign identity-based system, you would have your information on your phone, Michael. And if you wanted to share that information with another party or relying party, maybe in our marketplace, you'd be able to send your data directly to that company. And KYC chain, self-key, we wouldn't touch that data at, at all whatsoever. We wouldn't have any information on what that, that information was or is because we do not centralize the data in our servers. We, we run really a distributed architecture leveraging the blockchain. And the interesting thing about blockchain is that um, when you have a blockchain running across several different nodes, you can have a single source of truth. So if you say, took your passport, you wouldn't want to put your passport on the blockchain per se, but you could take a hash of your blockchain, of your passport and you could put that on the blockchain. So getting a slightly more technical here, a hash is right. the resulting output of a one-way cryptographic function, which basically means you take your passport, you scan it, you put it through a blockchain key, and then you get a certain output of text. And we'd store that text on the blockchain, which is exactly how Bitcoin works today. Bitcoin is is just a series of blocks with different nonces that have the amounts of blockchain at each address. And we're simply proposing that that could be used for identity so that if you went to that first relying party, the bank, and you shared with them a specific passport, you could go later to a different bank, credit union, stockbroker, and you could prove to them that this bank has already seen my passport. Look, the hash is exactly the same. It matches. And I am Michael. I, I shared my passport at this date three years ago with them. They certified it. And uh, now I'm sharing it again. Right. So, so that's where one area that we think uh, blockchain can be really helpful with, with identity. Right. And this whole concept of self-sovereign identity means now that I own my identity myself. Correct. Right. In other words, all of the data that's associated with me, all of the hash output that you've just talked about, that scan of my passport or the scan of my credit card or the scan of my driver's license, which creates that output that then confirms my identity in no central database that's on multiple nodes, which creates... What did you call it? The ultimate truth or like the believed truth? Yeah, a single source of truth. A single source of truth, right? So that allows me then to control the data about me, but it's not related to the data about anybody else. And, and you make a really good point with the Equifax event that happened over the last month or so, and that is I as an individual am an interesting target, as you said, but I'm not a massive target, which means that hacking me, which is possible, and we can talk about sort of quantum mathematics and quantum computing in a little bit to see if you have a view on that as well. But the idea that I control all of the information that's associated with me has wide ranging sort of political and social impact as well, I would think. Yeah, that's correct. And, and if I could just add one more Please. point there on, on the technical level, I'd Please. say that the scans are what we're dealing with today and what under you know laws and regulations were required to provide to financial institutions. But imagine the world, and this is possible with technology, where we can prove that we are who we say we are because of the key we hold, and we don't have to share any more information than that. And that makes us much more impenetrable to some kind of identity theft that makes it a much more safer world. So imagine that... Um, you know, Michael, you're walking into a bar in the U.S. and you're you're uh, 25 years old and, and everyone keeps asking you for an ID. You look very young and you have to prove that you're over 21. But you don't necessarily want to give to that bouncer your passport or your right. driver's license right. to tell him where you live. You don't need to show him that. He doesn't need to know that. Right. It's, it's extra information which is overshared. And, and with something which is called a verified claim, it would be possible to share that 
I am over 21. The XYZ bank has attested to the fact that I'm over 21 and I'm sharing just this piece of information with you. And, and that I think is really what, what blockchain can enable, what cryptography can enable, which other technologies um, just aren't there yet. Yeah, I mean, like, am I the only person that wonders why when I check into a hotel, they ask me for my passport? I mean, I know that there are some sort of really boutique and fancy hotels that want it so they can get a picture of you so that they can give you better service. But it's always occurred to me that, like, there's way too much information in there for me to want to give away for free, if that makes sense. Right? Like, I want to own that. I know who I am. I've already made a reservation. I've proven to you who I am. Literally, I can flash you anything. And I've always felt that giving away that information actually had value, which we can talk about that, too. Yep. Um, but you're right. The blockchain allows you just to have this key that just says, this is me. This is the data that you need about me that's already been verified. The rest of it's just, you know, excess and noise. You don't need that, right? And the blockchain actually allows that to take place, yeah? That's right. It's funny. We've been talking to Amadeus, which is one of the yep. largest travel companies in the world. And what we were suggesting them is we were just kind of having a brainstorm session between our two companies. So this is what the future of travel will look like if our, if our system is fully adopted. Um, you, want, you need to book a flight to Vietnam, Michael. You're in your Uber and you book the flight and you don't even have to select your passport number or identifying details. It already knows who you are. You simply pick the time and the date. It knows your seat preference and you click book. So two, two input fields and then you're done, time and date. You're already on your way to the airport. You walk into the airport and, and Thai immigration has already pre-cleared you because you've already notified them that you're going to be there with your self-key. They have your passport. They have the expiration date of your visa. You're already checked through. You walk straight through to the gate. You don't have to show your passport again. Maybe they even do a selfie verification at the gate to make sure that, again, Michael is Michael. You walk on the plane. You're on the plane and, and you're landing in Vietnam. You go straight to your hotel and you don't even have to check in. They've already checked you in and you can just walk straight to your room and unlock your door with your with your self key. That's all possible with technology. Now, there's obviously a lot of business, uh, you know, <laughs> hurdles to overcome there uh, and, and as well as government hurdles. So I'm not proposing that next month that'll be possible, but the technology's there. That That's for sure. Right. So what is the social impact? And again, this is, I, you know, we could talk about this for days over multiple beers and stuff, but there's a real, but there is a real social impact of this, right? In the sense that, you know, today governments as they are currently situated, literally control all that information. They can prevent you for no reason from either entering or exiting a particular country, you know, national borders rely on all of this stuff. And the whole concept of the blockchain and sort of, you know, KPI, you know, related and activated smart contracts means it's kind of describing what you're talking about here. And that is everything's already verified and everything's automated in this, and you cannot be denied because it's, it can all be automated on the blockchain, right? So what is the, what's the social impact or the governmental impact of that? Like what, is, what kind of power do governments or centralized authorities give up because all of that can be implemented using technology, whereas before it couldn't, yeah? Yeah, I think that there's going to be a lot of pushback from both governments and banks against this technology. Some will embrace it, and those governments and economies will, will thrive and flourish because it's very hard to prevent technology from, from taking root, especially technology which is designed to be peer-to-peer, censorship-proof. Right. And, yep. and, uh, and decentralized, you know, right? In other really, words, And decentralized. Because you can shut down a node, right? I mean, isn't this – I'd love to have a technical conversation about the structure, like the actual technical structure of – the blockchain, so people can get a better understanding of it, right? Because you can shut down one node 
and the rest of the system still survives. Right. And That's this right. Is, this is one of the interesting things to me. Remember, I come out of a finance background, right? So if I did a trade, let's say I'm a client and I do a trade with Morgan Stanley and I do that trade on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. You can tell what my life has been like for the past 20 years. <laughs> um, it just means that Morgan Stanley owns that data. That data sits on their on their books and records, and that's been done with the TSE. And that's it. If I want to know what that trade is, I've got to go back to Morgan Stanley and ask them what it is. But you can eliminate the Morgan Stanleys, and frankly, you can actually eliminate the Tokyo Stock Exchange as well. If you do this on peer-to-peer, blockchain-trusted nodes, where all of this stuff then just, all these transactions just occur. But what it means is that I no longer have to go to one central place, like you were talking about with the bank or the insurance company or the hospital, and say, what was that trade again? And if one node shuts down or if a country just like explodes, all that information is still out there and accessible by me. Right. And I think, the, I think the impact for that on not just on governments, but on businesses and on any sort of transactional business is so large in a way that, you know, cannot be explained in, in an hour long conversation, if that's fair. Oh, it's totally fair. I mean, it really is one of the most fundamental technological advances of our time. And it's a very horizontal um, technology. If, if you, you follow what I'm saying there, yeah, what absolutely. I'm, is that it, stretch, it stretches across various industries. It's not even specific to financial services. No, I mean, not at all. that's been the first use case. And yeah. Bitcoin is clearly a pretty interesting I don't want to say replacement, but alternative, alternative yeah. to fiat currencies. I mean, if you look at a country that restricts the uh, the currency outflows and has capital controls, as it's sometimes called, um, the governments can restrict the currency from flowing across borders. But when you have something like Bitcoin, which is inherently peer to peer, censorship proof, and decentralized, right. you can't, you cannot stop someone from using Bitcoin mm-hmm. and sending money across borders. And and this is, I think, very frightening to uh, the powers that be because. There's a certain loss of control there, and, and at some point, it's it's like in the sandbox, and like it just the nerds and the geeks understand it, and it's not really mainstream. But we're, we've sort of started to see in 2017, blockchain go a little bit mainstream. Not, I don't think it's it's fair to call it mainstream at this point. But for instance, the amount of of money which is raised in ICOs this year has been over two billion dollars. I mean, that's not an amount that you can kind of you know snub your nose at. That that's a significant amount of capital. Which has been which has been moving into startups who have now been raising money in a, in a way where they can really collect money from investors all over the world. They can do it instantly, and uh, yes, some governments have have taken object to that. Um, you know, namely Chinese government and, and the Korean government. Right, and we can talk about that in a second as well. And I want I want to give another statistic that I heard recently, and that is about a billion and a half dollars of cryptocurrency, including Bitcoin and Ethereum, trade daily. If you look at the statistics on coinmarketcap.com, a billion and a half dollars trades daily. You might think, is that a lot? Is that a little? But that's the same amount of stock that trades daily in Google. So it's not small. It's not, and you, you know, you said it sits in the sandbox of just geeks and sort of enthusiasts, but it's really, and you said it correctly, I think, 2017 is the year where it's really started to spill out of the sandbox, right? So we had... A crypto wave in 2011 where people were like, you know, Bitcoin and blockchain, this is the new big thing. And then it all kind of went pear-shaped, right? It went from $500 all the way down to like 150 or $70. And people just said, yep, I told you this is nonsense. Oh. And now we're over $5,000. But but I want to be clear about this and, and help me do it. You know, the cryptocurrency and the cryptology revolution, revolution that's taking place is not, as you said, and I want to be explicit about it, it's not just a financial 
um, issue. It is very horizontal. And I believe strongly, you know, I published something on my blog a couple of days ago that I titled, you know, Jamie Dimon was wrong. And <laughs> because, because he is wrong. And one of the, you know, again, just because I come out of a finance background, I look at it from that perspective. But talk about any contract you have. I was talking to somebody about this in the logistics space, right? Um, one of the biggest problems in logistics is fraud and counterfeit. You can imagine, because you do this every day, right? One of the things you said was the biggest problem you had was proving to the bank that the person who said they were Michael Waits actually was. It's trust. It's able to confirm it and able to get that truth, right? That singular truth. But just think about, and I know you know this, I'm not talking to you particularly, but just think about if I want to ship a Louis Vuitton bag or some Chanel perfume from its factory to the coast onto a boat and then to Thailand, at every step along the way, there is a micro chance of some kind of fraud or counterfeit happening unless you put each one of those steps on a blockchain. I didn't say the blockchain, yeah, on a blockchain. And then at every micro step, it's confirmed that that product is actually the product that was actually created in that factory that has the blessing of whatever that brand is. Like there's a really interesting thing that's happening um, in the logistics space, and I talked to a guy who's based in Hong Kong about this, but he's like you. He's, you know, he's, his home is seat 1B maybe. But, but it's very horizontal, and that's why this conversation to me is not going to go away, is that the applications for it from a societal perspective are just so deep and so broad but it's going to take a while for people to get used to it, I think, yeah? Yeah, I would agree. And I just to your point, I'd second that. I think that trade has tremendous benefits from blockchain. Provenance is something where we've seen everything from diamonds to shoes yep. being timestamped on, on blockchain to pork um, moving you know, in, in and out of China. So there's there's many different applications of blockchain. I think there have been several that have been well proven in the space till now, currencies and cryptocurrencies are, are uh, doing quite well in 2017. And uh, fundraising for startups has done quite well in 2017. Yeah, so um, but, what, what do you want to, what do you want to, what's your view on this whole concept of an ICO, right? I mean, I have my own opinion on it, which I can give. I'm just curious what your opinion is. Like you said, hundreds of, what is it, you say $2 billion has been raised this year alone? That's a lot. Yeah, it's, it's probably out of date too. I mean, it's just, it's, <laughs> it's, it's insane how much money some particular companies, foundations have raised using, using this uh, ICO or, or token sale method. Um, right. My view on it is that there's, there's sort of two very distinct paths. And, and one of them is when an ICO is a security. This is when it's a, it's, a financial instrument which should be regulated, which conveys some kind of profit to investors who are investing in anticipation of a future return. Right. That's one category. That's one bucket security. There's another category which should be called a utility. Utility token. And this is, yeah, I think it's unfair to group them together because they're both very distinct. And, and if you're going to do a, a token sale, you should be very precise in the way that you explain to either your investors of your security right. or your purchasers of a utility that it either is or is not a guarantee on said future revenue or profits. And, and so that's, I think, a very important distinction to make between the two right off the bat. So do you want to dig just a little bit deeper and sort of make the real distinction? So how would you just define a little bit more clearly for, again, for people that don't necessarily understand exactly what that means? Because I think there's some question around, like, what is a security and what is a utility token? 
right? Because it's new. So I think that there's some confusion in the market about what that is. I think the people that are in it every day know what it is, right? Um, yeah, we're, we're speaking on a very high level yep. about it. So maybe if I give a more precise example, please. you know, maybe even using my project because I know that well, sure. then, please, then please, I won't please. speak erroneously about someone else's Somebody project. Somebody else's project. Yeah, um, yeah so, so in our in our ecosystem, the self-key ecosystem, our token called key is used to power identity interactions. So if you say needed to get your documents translated, you know, we both uh, – you know, keep an apartment in Thailand. And if we need to have our utility bill translated in order to use that to open up a bank account in Singapore, it has to be translated, right? And, yep. and probably also certified. Uh, that interaction can be paid for or fueled by key. So it, it acts as kind of the, the lubricant or the gas within the network. So in Ethereum, Ether or, or ETH, ETH acts as the gas to power the EVM, the Ethereum virtual machine, which is without getting too far into it, a large distributed computer which runs programs called smart contracts, yep. which are uh, censorship-proof and execute automatically as long as the conditions are met. And and that's that's very valuable for certain things like prediction markets and otherwise. So in any event, um, these utility tokens are used in a variety of different projects to power different projects. And I think that what you have to look at if you're thinking about participating in a token sale is a, is it a security or, or B, is it a utility token? And what do I actually get as a utility for this? If you're purely speculating, um, yes, you can make money, but you can also lose money. And and if you do lose money, um, you don't necessarily have, have any recourse uh, a lot of the times um, for these projects. So it's a very high risk, very high reward type of endeavor. Um, I'm not sure what else I could say about it. I mean, I could talk for hours about this, but <laughs> maybe you can leave me with a specific question. Yeah, just curious. So, like, what what would pe- people watch? What's ha- what's happening, right? So they look at things like Tezos for people that are paying attention, right? Sure. And so Tezos is a utility token, right? Yeah. So so Tezos is a uh, a ledger with, um, as I understand it from from my limited knowledge about their white paper, it's it's something where you can swap in a different consensus protocol. Um, whether that would be valuable or not, I'll sort of. Uh, Leave that aside them, yeah, I, again. I don't have a view on that either, but yeah. But but what I do have a view on is that these these guys raised over two hundred and thirty, two hundred twenty three million dollars. Sure, yeah, over two hundred million dollars, and then they got this money and they said, "Guys, we raised a lot of money. Um, <laughs> I think what we're going to do is we're going to buy some stocks, bond, and gold now." And 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 I kind of felt like, wait, wait, what? Really? Because uh, that wasn't really what you were proposing when you started this project. That's something a little bit different. And, and maybe it was in the fine print, but you told us that you were going to build a ledger. Right. And now you're you're buying all of these these assets. And and their defense would be that, yeah, we never expected to raise that much. And now that we have, we need to protect our, our assets. We have a fiduciary duty to our um, purchasers. So we're going to buy these assets. But But for me, it feels very much like you quite simply raised way too much money. And if you had raised a smaller amount, you would be more incentivized to deliver a working product within a reasonable time frame that was actually beneficial to people as opposed to sort of uh, sitting on your yacht counting your counting your hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, not that they're sitting on a yacht. I, I implied that probably unfairly. But uh, I think many people would agree, and perhaps even them, that they raised uh, far too much money. Right. I mean, I think if you listen, if you listen to the founders of Tezos or Tezos, I'm never sure how to pronounce it, talk, you know, their anticipation was that they were going to raise 
twenty million dollars. Actually, it was more like ten, but they put no cap on it, right? They should have capped it. Then. I, yeah, I that's, agree. A, that's a bad excuse. We right, should explain so, what a cap is, though. Yeah, so a cap. I mean, a cap is re- it, it is what it is. It's like it's in the name. We're we're only selling a certain amount of tokens that provide utility to help us build this platform through a um, through an organization, right, and a foundation that we set up in. Switzerland in Zug, I believe, is what the Tezos team did. Yep. And we're going to use these utilities, these utility tokens for people to be able to transact on our platform that we're building. Um, and they've spent a couple of years spending their own money to do it, to build a platform that has a sort of KPI-generated smart, dumb contract platform. And that's fair, right? Um, and they had a little bit of venture capital funding as well. But to me, it always and I, I've listened to them talk a lot, right? Why would you allow what seemed to me to be a little bit of a runaway sale? Like if you really only needed $10 million to build a platform, if you go to a venture capitalist, if you've done this before, right? So if you've raised venture money or even just raised money from friends and family, they'll always ask you, what are you going to do with the proceeds of these, um, of this capital raise? So you have a plan, but if that plan does not require $223 million, remember that their white paper also said that they were going to get 10% of the proceeds, right? And that meant that yeah. if it was a $10 million raise or a $20 million raise, the founders would get $2 million, which feels kind of fair since they've been working on the project for two years, 18 months to two years, and probably have taken very little salary. But again, that's what you sign up for when you're doing a startup company anywhere in the world, right? So. I don't think there's a lot of sympathy for that. You have an idea. You believe in that idea. You know, what the Ethereum platform promises is actually quite interesting in the context of blockchain technology and building on top of that technology. So fair enough. But the windfall to me just feels uncomfortable. Again, I don't have a view on it per se, but like you said, it feels slightly uncomfortable. And the reason why is if you only needed 10 million bucks, why did you not cap it? Why did you not prevent the speculation of people coming going, I'll buy some of that. I'll sell some of my Ethereum and buy your, what is it? Um, I forget what it's called. X. Tezzies. Yeah, the Tezzies, right? So there's a little bit of a conflict there in my mind. But again, you know, they feel like they've done all the right things, right? They set up the foundation. The foundation keeps 5% of the proceeds. They give 95% out to develop the platform. But like you said, that a lot of that money is now going in to buy other assets, and you can make the case that they're using it to protect, um, you know, their upside or their downside. But it just well, let's feels give another weird, example because right? that one feels very gloomy. <laughs> at least I, I feel negatively about that project, and, and uh, I think if you look at another project which has started in Thailand, Omise Go. So Omise was this startup which has been around for a couple years, and they decided that they were going to do it's, it's a payment processing platform similar to stripe you might make that comparison and they released a token called omg right. um, which is what it was used for is, is less important than how it performed i think uh to date so they had a crowd sale of around 25 million dollars which is very private um very closed and anyone who participated in that token sale has done tremendously well because the the overall market capitalization has gone from 25 million to 800, today, 890 million dollars Almost a billion dollars. Yeah, so it was up over a billion. It was 1.2 at one point, but now it's back below because there's a little bit of drop-off in the overall market. But yeah, so that's weird, no? Weird or the new way to raise money? Who knows? It's kind of tough to tell. Yeah, again, but interesting, right? So the question for Omise is, you know, they set up a separate foundation too, right? So the CEO of Omise Go is separate from, you know, Jun and and um, and the other guy who runs the Omise payments company, right? So those are two separate yep. entities. Donnie. Donnie, yeah. 
Um, and that money is meant to build out to build out that platform that allows payments to take place on their platform. But the same thing, how much of that how much of that capital raise remained in control in the control of the Omisego team, and how much of it was bought by speculators, right? So the question, for, and I don't know the answer to this question, right? But how much do they still have? Because if they still have a billion dollars, then wow, it feels like a really interesting way to raise money. But if most of that is held by people external to the foundation, you know, you get into this question with IPOs as well. It's like, how much money did you leave on the table if the value of your transactional ability is really worth a billion dollars, but you only raised 19 or 20 million bucks? Well, yeah, I think we've we've the days of Tezos raising two hundred thirty million dollars is is kind of past, at least in the current market sentiment. What we're seeing right now is more of twenty five, thirty. I mean, just by way of comparison, we're raising we're we're capping our sale at thirty three million, um, and and we feel like that's enough to last us quite a long time, especially operating in Southeast Asia. And I just feel like in my heart of hearts that if you're raising over a hundred million dollars. Man, that's that's a lot of money to be uh, taking, especially if you don't have a product in market, um, of which a lot of these companies, frankly, don't. We do have a product in market, but a lot of companies are um, really have sort of a business plan pie in the sky. We'd like to build something that changes the world. Give us your money. And, uh, you know, Tezos, for instance, didn't have a working product at the time of their token sale. Right. So here's the other issue that I read a lot about, right? I mean, and that is people are saying, you know, because it, this this whole concept sits on the edge of you know regulators and sort of regulatory um, <clears throat> what's the right word consistency globally, right? Because it's just so new; it hasn't happened yet. And to me, it just feels a lot like you know the 1900s in the context of stock markets and bonds and stuff like that. Like the SEC will come out and regulate, but to be fair, the SEC in the United States is a self-regulating body for the for the securities business, right? In the sense that. You know, the former chairman of, and I'm making it up, yeah, Bear Stearns can actually end up being the head of the SEC. He's regulating his friends. So there's some question in my mind about, like, what a self-regulating body could, you know, it's like, leave it to us, don't worry, we'll just create CDOs, CDSs, and um, and uh, and swaps, and then hopefully the Those World Financial well, said, yeah, so. that'll all work out fine as long as we're selling it to insurance <laughs> companies in um, in Sweden. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you understand what I mean? Like, there's, there's, there are regulators and there are regulators, so fair enough. But you can also make the case that there are plenty of, um, you know, venture capital backed companies that have raised $20 million on the back of, you know, an idea on a napkin that went to zero too. Oh, totally. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that people are sort of demonizing token sales or, or regulators in some jurisdictions. Now, now to be fair, some regulators have taken a very measured approach. Sure. sure. I think that, uh, you know, for instance, the regulators in Hong Kong, I think, had a very measured approach where they said, this may fall under our existing regime, and it may be classified as a security or, or uh, otherwise be regulated in Hong Kong, but there are certain instances where it may not. And I think that we'll see most jurisdictions take that route. I think if you interpreted the SEC, and this is not legal advice to anyone listening, Understood. Uh, if, if you if you interpreted the if you have a look at what the SEC said about the Dow, so the Dow clearly was a security, um, at least right. in my opinion, in my mind, um, and and they sort of gave uh, a letter um, to the public. I'm not sure if that's the correct terminology, but they they issued some kind of written memorandum which says that this was a security, and if and if you 
as a ICO project leader decide to do a token sale in this similar manner, you may be regulated by us and we may take enforcement action, which is fair. I mean, I think very fair. You know, the fact that they're at least giving you warning. um, Now you need to lawyer up and you need to see what your lawyers tell you and you need to, um, you know, really listen to them. I mean, just by way of an example, we have 12 different lawyers working on our project at the moment. It's just there's a massive amount of legal work that goes into doing a token sale. I just can't understate that. If, you, if you're listening to this and thinking about, hey, yeah, this, this seems like a cool idea. I've had this business on the back burner for a while. We could, we could totally do an ICO for this. Please get yourself a good securities lawyer and understand that it's not only where you're incorporated that you'll be regulated. You'll be regulated any place where you're selling your tokens. So if, if uh, you're selling to residents of the United States of America, you could be regulated by the SEC if they if they deem that as a as a security as opposed to a utility security. token, right? But it's interesting right. to me too, right? And I've been I want to talk a little bit about the HKMA, the MAS, and then the China regulators because I find what they're doing actually quite interesting, and I'm really curious to hear your opinion on this. But I want to get back to the legal aspects of this, right? And I've been working on another project that has nothing to do with the blockchain and nothing to do, you know, with securities regulation at all, but I've just found that the lawyers that one of the clients is dealing with is literally there. And I'm not saying, and, and don't, this is not a blanket comment on lawyers because believe me, everybody, everybody serves a purpose, right? But they're just out there trying to take fees in this particular deal. Mm. And they had a sort of fee goal in mind where they're taking, you know, it's weird to be in a job that pays you $875 an hour. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I, I get the fact that the law is hard to deal with and that precedent and you have to do research and all this other stuff. It's not easy work. But I also believe, um, and I was like you, so don't get me wrong. I wanted to be a lawyer too. So maybe there's a little bit of sour grapes there. Fair enough. <laughs> Call me whatever you want. But I just, it, just in this one deal I'm working on, it's separate to this. It just feels like those lawyers are uninterested in whether the deal actually happens, but they're very interested in whether they get paid or not. And, they're really interesting. But you I mean, know what I mean? Because, yeah. no, but, and I'll tell you why. Because that deal got quashed last week, and they reached a sort of plateau of somewhere between fifty and $75,000 of fees. It's not a ton of money. And then they just told the client, you know what? You shouldn't do this deal. But not because it was either good, bad, or indifferent for the client, but because they'd made their money, and they could just walk away. So it's, so to me, like it's just interesting that you have so much legal representation around something that's so new. It's just weird to me. And again, I don't have, you know, there's some stuff I know a lot about and some stuff I don't know so much about, right? I'm learning. One of the reasons why I'm talking to you is because I'm trying to learn and I'm trying to give a platform for people to learn about what's going on here, not because I am the be-all and end-all expert, right? I don't know everything. That's for sure. And I definitely don't have a monopoly on the right answer to a lot of different things. But I just find it curious, right? Like if I want to get open heart surgery, I don't need 12 lawyers. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Well, well, here's what we did. Um, I, I can't speak for anyone else, but I can tell you that we managed to get our lawyers incentivized to the outcome of completing the deal. Sure. So here's what I did is I went to I, I, I emailed I'll, I'll be blatantly honest. I emailed literally probably every law firm that I could find or, or more precisely, I told one of my staff to, to go and email pretty much everyone in major jurisdictions where transactions take place tell them what we're doing and ask them if they have a view on it and they'd like to participate. And then what we did is we cut a deal with the lawyers that they would get a percentage of the overall sale, 1%, and then it would be capped. And that they would work on an hourly rate, whatever their hourly rate was, and they would receive tokens, our tokens, key tokens, for completing this deal uh, properly. Um, 
proportionate to the amount of hours that they'd worked. And, and this allowed us to get lawyers who are specialized in a specific jurisdiction, a yep. specific expertise, because most lawyers don't have a horizontal expertise. They have a very narrow expertise. Absolutely. And, and you know, whether they're good or bad depends on the individual lawyer, but they tend to have a specific expertise given uh, in a specific jurisdiction. So in any event, we, we found that this incentivized the lawyers to really work with us in a way where they were um, vested in the deal to see it go to completion, to see the project not only be completed, but also have long-term success. So our, our one form, uh, Applebee's, who's representing us in, in several jurisdictions, has even made um, some high-level introductions, has has uh, referred to us publicly, has um, reviewed you know every piece of documentation that we have. I mean, put it this way, we look at every single piece of information that we put out publicly as something that needs to be legally reviewed. We need to have a terms and conditions of the sale, which is meticulously combed through, which is 30 pages long. We need to have a KYC policy. We need to have a terms and conditions. We need to have a privacy policy. We need to really, uh, there's just so much legal work that has to be done. It's sort of insane. I sort of feel like I don't have enough lawyers and I've got like a team of them. Um, so, <laughs> but I, yeah. and, I, and I give you a lot of credit as well because I've actually done the same thing, right? So I've gone out to lawyers and I said, look, this is an expensive proposition if you just get paid in the way you've always been paid. But let's do this. Let's do what you said, right? And I've, I've had that conversation with lawyers, and all of them, not all of them, but most of them have said the same thing to me. Yeah, that's great, but I have real costs that are associated with actually doing this work, right? I have a staff, I have to register something. If you're gonna set up a foundation in Switzerland, I've got, that has to get paid, all these things, right? And most of them actually charge, at least, the conversations that I've had, most of them will charge a VIG on top of that setup cost. So if like the yeah. jurisdiction in Switzerland, I'm making it up, yeah, because I don't know the answer. But if the jurisdiction in Switzerland says it costs $35,000 to register a company, the lawyer will charge you fifty because they'll take a $15,000 VIG. And I've tried to eliminate all that stuff because fair enough, someone should pay for it. But you end up in kind of a similar situation where only people that have the money to do all that can get the money to build the product. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, we've got a solution for that. If you go to incorporations in the self-key marketplace, you can look at the prices and sort by jurisdiction. Now. Awesome. No, that's great. So, and that's awesome. No, 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 plug it for sure, because that's a real service. Like, I don't mind that kind of plug at all, because that's a real service that real companies need. And I'll tell you why. Because there is kind of an old, I don't want to say old boys network, right? Because it ends up being kind of sexist. But there is a network out there of people that kind of exclude others from that club. And it's everywhere in the world. It's not just in one particular vertical, as you said. It's a horizontal issue. And part of the problem is transparency. People don't know what it really costs, right? But that's if right. you're doing that, that's actually like super important because the next person that comes and does this benefits from all of the work that you've done and all the sort of negotiations that you've accomplished by doing that. And that is, in a way, really noble and kind of comes all the way back around full circle to the concept of, there's no one centralized place that owns all of the information and that this ability to decentralize things um, on a blockchain, and forgive me for being a little bit you know, philosophical, but it democratizes the access to that information and to the financial benefits that are associated with understanding that information. And that, to me, is one of the most powerful things about businesses that are built on the chain because it's hard to exclude somebody from it because it's sort of automatically executed based on stuff that you're building like smart contracts. And that's beautiful in my mind. Did I just I overstep my boundary or? Well, 
I think that blockchain won't be curing cancer anytime soon. But no, 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 no. But but it's, <laughs> but it's progress, right? That's I'm really just trying progress. to say it's progress. It is. Yeah, it absolutely is. And and I think we we live in such an amazing time where this is actually possible. And it's not just blockchain. There's other amazing technologies which are you know coming about. I mean, just look at the internet, high speed internet, um, all mobile access, right? Where now a person living in in Africa or in in uh, I don't know, pick your place, you know, uh, yeah. random so, island in Indonesia now has access to the cumulative knowledge of mankind at their fingertips sure. with their smartphone for the sure. first time ever. Like, but, even, but even, Mike, and I hate to keep getting back to finance, right, but finance matters, right? So you have a small village in Africa that has no bank, no way to store value, but yet microfinance and micropayments now allow them to start a business. And that business can start as like a hat weaving business and grow into like an oil exploration business because they actually have a way to store value which they never had before. And you're right, that power across the board is being driven by tons of technological advances. I mean, we chose to talk today a little bit about the blockchain, but it's not the only sort of paradigm-changing technology. It's just the thing that I wanted to talk about today, if that makes sense. Totally makes sense. And, and I think that blockchain is, as we've seen so far, kind of specific to finance, just disrupting a lot. And uh, It's really exciting because, as you talked about the Old Boys Network, finance is kind of like, this very old boys network, highly regulated large, institutions, man. very, very large. And, and uh, we, we just haven't seen much change in, in the financial sector. I mean, we've seen other industries completely disrupted. Look at publishing. Publishing looks nothing like it looked 20, 30 years ago. No. Finance looks more or less, well, up it's to, faster, up to but otherwise it looks exactly ago. the same. Pretty much. Pretty much. And, yeah. and I don't think that it will look the same. Five years from now, I think we're in a period of disruption where we're seeing fintech investment, particularly in Asia. It's, it's really interesting to see what's happening with fintech. Uh, I, I met someone one time that said there is no such thing as fintech. There is only China fintech because of the <laughs> size and breadth and depth. I mean, you go to Shenzhen and you, you can walk into this company, WeBank, and you talk to the CTO and you're like, I, I asked him, how many engineers do you have here? And he's like, 500. I was like, how many engineers do you have here two years ago? He's like, zero. Like, wow, that was, that was fast. pretty fast. You know, and uh, I mean, these companies just have such enormous scale in such a small period of time. It's, yeah. it's sort of breathtaking. And this is where this is the part of the world where this is happening, right? It's not necessarily happening to the same size or scale in the U.S. that it's happening, you know, out here in Asia in specific geographies. Yeah, and I think part of the reason, and again, you can, I'm often wrong, so you can tell me that I'm wrong, right? But I think part of the reason why is because there's no legacy infrastructure there to prevent it from happening, right? And I think oh. this actually brings up maybe the final point, because I've taken up way too much of your time today. But, you know, the Chinese government, as you said, is, has shut down, and I may get some of this wrong, but they've shut down some of the exchanges and some of the trading of cryptocurrency over the past month or so, and I think Korea was in the process of doing a similar thing. But one of the reasons I think why, one, I didn't say the only reason, but one of the reasons why is because I think they're just trying to get their head around how to regulate it properly. I don't think yep. they're going to shut this down permanently at any level. I don't think they want to. I don't think they've intimated that. I think the idea is, holy shit, excuse my language, but this is going to be important. It's not going away. But there's no even there's no sort of regulatory infrastructure around that is similar to what's happening here. So let's just stop it for a moment. Let's pause, and then put the proper infrastructure around it, and then let it ride. You know what I mean? And then let it start again. Is do you think that that's wrong? Or I think it's possible. I mean, I've I've read a lot of press releases yesterday that says, uh, or recently that says PBOC is is starting their own cryptocurrency. So it's a bit of uh, do as I say, not what I do. Yeah, <laughs> 
But um, yeah, I think that they are trying to wrap their head around it. And I do think that it will come back. I, I just think it's a temporary, hey, what's going on here? We need to slow this down. And I, and I also think it's largely related to capital controls, right. in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get into the politics of it. But yeah, you talked about it earlier. You, you at least hinted at it that, you know, the countries where there are, um, you know, capital expatriation controls, right, where people want to take their money out of the country, you know, that's where the AML stuff, right? So the anti-money laundering stuff, the KYC, which you're intimately involved in and knowledgeable of comes into play as well. But just those capital controls means that you can't take your wand out of the country and I can control the foreign exchange markets to a certain extent, but it's pretty hard to change to control a decentralized, you know, non-fiat digital cryptology currency. So let's just like shut every piece of it down, Right. Or try to. Or try to, yeah, because it's an attempt. It's, I don't think it's a guarantee. And the other thing about China that I just find fascinating is that the government itself is actually super transparent in all the things that it's trying to accomplish. And I think that is as well as a paradigm change in the way that a lot of governments um, act. You know, they could have shut that stuff down quietly and violently but they didn't. They just said to everybody, look, on I forget what it was, October 1st? I forget what the date was. This is all going to stop, and then we're going to try to figure it out. But I think that's good for the market, not bad. That's just my opinion. It's exciting times. Yeah, very. Look, Evan, I don't want to take up more of your time. Hopefully, and I really mean this, like you are the pioneer on the ATP Crypto Podcast, and hopefully you've enjoyed it, found it useful, didn't find the questions that I was asking, you know, stupid. It was great. Yeah, and you know, hopefully we can do this again because really what we want to do here is we want to give people a platform to discuss this so that people, unlike we are, that aren't intimately involved in it every day, can find a place where they can kind of learn more about it and hear differing opinions. Absolutely. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.